So today's passage, it contains a familiar story. It's the story called the Good Samaritan. Now, even if you never attended church before, you know this phrase. In most uh, English dictionaries, it actually has this, this phrase listed to describe a person who is kind, who is sacrificial towards someone else. So this phrase is quite popular. Uh, you might not know where Samaria is, but you would know who a good Samaritan is like. And so this is very familiar to us. Many of us, we grew up hearing this story in Sunday school, so we might even be able to remember all the different characters. But not many of us actually remember that this story came out of the context of a lawyer asking the question, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? So it's not a story about just how do you be a good person? Like, how can you be a good citizen in society? The question is, how do I inherit eternal life? It's a question that was asked to Jesus by this lawyer, who is not just someone who's practicing the law of the land. He's someone who knows the law of God very well. A lawyer in Jesus' time was someone who knew the Old Testament very well, most likely memorized most of the Old Testament, especially parts of the law. He was someone who was looked up upon, uh, a Bible scholar who uh, knew really all the answers to, to the people's questions. And so this is an expert of God's law, and he comes to Jesus, and the Bible reminds us that his motives are not that pure, that his intentions are not innocent. The Bible says in verse 25, he came to Jesus to test Jesus. And so he's asking this question, not because he's curious of what Jesus has to say, not because he's puzzled at this question, but he's trying to test Jesus. He kind of knows the answer, but he wants to see if Jesus knows the answer, maybe discredit Jesus because he's well-known as this Bible teacher, and he feels like, I know more than Jesus, and so he's trying to put Jesus to the test. But the question that he asks is this, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a very important question. I mean, in our words, it would be, how do you go to heaven? How do you be with God? Uh, how can you be accepted by God and experience his favor on this earth and, and uh, after this life? And so how can you be saved? That's really the question that this person is, is asking. And what we see is that Jesus, when he receives this question, instead of answering the question, he he turns the question back to the lawyer, and he says to him in, in verse 26, well, what do you see in the law? How do you read it? Like, I'm, I'm just a carpenter, right, from Galilee. Like, you're the one who's the expert of the law. You're the one who studied God's word all your life. Well, what does the word have to say to you? And it says in verse 27, this man, the lawyer, he responded, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbors as yourself. Now, this should be a familiar phrase to us, because in a different place, in Matthew 22, we see that there was another lawyer who came up to Jesus, and his question was this, out of the 600 plus laws that we see in, in the Bible, which one is the most important one? Like, which one is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19. He says, well, the greatest commandment, the first, the most important commandment, the single greatest commandment is this, that you have to love your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. And the second greatest commandment is that you would love your neighbors as yourself. So Jesus literally gave the same answer when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? 
And so what we see in today's passage is this lawyer, he knows his stuff. He got it right. Like he, he answered correctly. This is an eternally significant question. The question that everyone is dying to know. And he asks this question. He answers this question correctly. And what Jesus says is, absolutely, man, you got it right. I mean, you don't see a whole lot of Jesus saying to other people, yeah, you're right, right? A lot of times it's just, hey, you're sinful, you're wrong. Hey, that was incorrect. Peter, again, you, like, hey, when are you going to learn? But in this case, Jesus says, no, you are actually correct. But he also says in verse 28, now do this. Now that you know the correct information, now do this and you will live. And you will live. Now again, What's at stake is eternity, eternal life. How do you inherit eternal life? By knowing what the greatest commandment is and by doing it, by living it out. This is where you see that you can't just know stuff, that you have to obey and and live it out. Now, some people might say, well, at this point, Jesus, is he promoting a work-based salvation? Is he saying that you need to do all these stuff in order for you to be saved. No, I think the point that Jesus is trying to make is this. Like he's, he's trying to remind us that God, he is absolutely holy. What he requires of us is absolutely right. And what is required is that we would love him and love others in a, in a radical way. And so normally, when people hear this, 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 this answer, I think they would, they would respond in such a way as, man, I don't know if I can meet that standard. I don't know if my life is that good. If I really love God that much, if I love my neighbor that much to the point that I am worthy of inheriting eternal life. But this guy was different. This expert of the law, not only does he know a lot of stuff, but he feels pretty good about his chances. Like He, he might not be the, the, the most perfect person on the, in the universe, but when he looks at other people and they don't know their Bible, they don't live out their Bible, he feels like I'm, I'm at least on the top tier when it comes to holiness. Like I might not, I might not, might not be perfect, But if there's anyone who's worthy of God's kingdom, who's worthy of heaven, it ought to be me. Like, that's kind of his heart at this point. And you see this in verse 29 because he asks a follow-up question. Instead of asking the question, how in the world, God, do I do this, love you and love others? No, the question that he asks, it says this. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Notice that his heart is that, okay, like, I'm not too far off with this commandment. Like, I love God. I pray enough. uh, I I attended services enough. I came to enough church stuff that I feel like I have a good chance of of loving God. And and when it comes to loving my neighbors, I might might not be perfect, but time to time I do some good stuff, beneficial stuff. So so let me ask the follow-up question. How far do I take this? Like, am I safe? That's what he's asking. Who is my neighbor? Because for a lot of Jews, they had different circles in their lives. They had themselves in the middle, and around them, family was really important. And then you had extended family uh, because they tend to live all together. And then you had people in the village, other Jews who would live among them. And then you had the Jews who were far off. And that's where the, the circle ended. That's how far you go when it comes to loving others. Gentiles, Samaritans, they are unworthy of love. Those are enemies. Like, for them, they're, they're thinking, okay, God, you place these people in my life. How can I love these people? Like, who are my neighbors? That's what he's asking. So who's my neighbor, and how far do I go? And to this question, Jesus responds with a story. It says in verse 30, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, 
And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 17 miles. Um, just to put that into perspective, if you walk from here to the White House, that's about 10 miles. I'll look it up in Google. Hopefully they're accurate. But so this is quite a distance. It's not like an easy journey. It's, you're not just going down the road. Right? This is a hard journey, a long journey. Uh, the elevation also, the change is quite, quite dramatic. 3,500 uh, feet difference in altitude from start to, to, to finish. And so there's a big change. This is steep downhill all the way, very rocky. Uh, Along the road on each side, you have all these stones, these caves, these cliffs, these rocks. And so it was the perfect place for robbers to hide. Because the road was so dangerous and narrow, because it was hard for people to live in this land, it was empty land, and so there was no one there. And so there was a lot of places to hide, and so it was the perfect place for robbers. So back in this, these days, like, it was quite common that people, when they were traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, that they would meet these robbers. And sure enough, in today's passage, we see a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Most likely this man, we know from this description that he's likely a Jew because he's in Jerusalem going to Jericho. But we are told is he's jumped by these robbers. Like he's beaten, he's stripped, all his possessions taken away, clothes taken away, and he's left there, and he's half dead. Like, what does it mean to be half dead, by the way? You're either alive or dead, right? Like, half dead, that means you are breathing, but you're about to die. Like, you're in critical condition. Like, it's a matter of time that you, you die. That's how bad this guy was beaten. Like, this man is fighting for his life in the midst of this, this treacherous road, like this dangerous road. And what we see after this is there are three characters that appear. And I encourage you to, if you're writing notes, that you would write down some, some descriptions of these different characters. But the first two characters that we see, they're supposed to give you a picture of what it's like to not love your neighbor. Okay, The first two people gives you a picture of what it's like to not love your neighbor. It says in verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So once again, on this treacherous road, you have a dying man. Like he's all alone. But it doesn't have to end that way. This is this man's lucky day because someone shows up and that person happens to be a priest. Now, if you don't know anything about a priest, priests are people who conducted all the religious services, the sacrifices in the holy temple of Jerusalem. And so these people, they're called to officiate all these religious services. They're people who are leading others spiritually. If there's anyone who loves God enough, who ought to love others enough, it should be the priest. It's like the modern-day pastors, right? These are the people who get paid to love God and to love others. And then you have next the Levite, who's, who's also working at the temple. These are people who are set apart. Uh, when, when you look at the 12 tribes of, 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 of Israel, you have the tribe of, of, of Levi that was set apart. Uh, they were people who were designated to assist the priests, the, the people from the line of Aaron. And so these, these guys, too, they, they work at the temple of Jerusalem. They are very religious. Uh, 
They, they know God's word and they know what the commandment is. And so they're leading others to worship, to live a life of holiness. And, and this man is, is lucky because on the road, he meets these two guys. Like, well, that's what you would think. You would think that out of everyone that these people would stop and help this man. But the, what the story tells us is this. In verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. So two things. Clearly, these two individuals saw this dying man. Like it says, they saw him. Like it's not like they were busy doing other stuff. It's not like they they weren't paying attention. They literally saw the need of this man on this road. And instead of stopping, they, they went around. And the question is, why? Why would you go around and not help a man who is dying on a road? Well, there's a lot of different theories, reasons that we can come up with. The Bible doesn't explicitly state that this is exactly why they didn't stop. They went around. But I can think of two key factors um, just based on, on the culture and the context. I think the big factor here is fear. Number one is fear. Why didn't these people stop? I think a big factor is fear because, you know, if you think about it, this man, he's beaten, he's covered with blood, he doesn't have any clothes on, he can't speak to you when you're trying to have a conversation, and so there's no way for for you to identify who this person is. You don't know if it's a Gentile, if it's a Jew, if it's someone that you know, like, that's really, really hard. And remember, this is a very dangerous road. Like, it's very common for robbers to hide. And you literally see a guy who's lying on the road. Could it be a bait? Like, could it be that robbers are still nearby? Like, just like they've beaten this guy up and, and, and left him half dead. Could it be that they're still around just waiting for an opportunity to jump on someone else that comes to help? Could it be that this guy actually is a robber? That he's just pretending to be dead? Like, this is a scheme somehow. They don't know that. All they know is that this is a treacherous road that is dangerous and stuff like this happened. And they're about to go back to their family after a long day. And so for them, they're thinking, man, like, it's kind of scary that I don't know this guy. If it was my neighbor, yeah, I would have stopped. Like, if I knew this guy like, by name, obviously I would stop. But I looked at this person, can't identify this person. Like, there's not much I can do. Seems like a trap. And so they move on. Well, this could have been a possibility. Um, but... And you might think, well, that sounds very selfish, but how often do you go around and disobey the second greatest commandment to love your neighbor simply out of fear? It's not even physical fear. You're afraid what other people might think of you. You're afraid of rejection. That kid who's eating alone in the cafeteria, like, I don't know what people would think of me if I go and sit with that person and strap a conversation. Maybe he says something mean to me. Like, maybe he doesn't want my business. Like, what if I stop in the middle of the road and help this homeless person? Like, what if his intentions are bad and he's just trying to get money from me? Like, like I, that's, that's unsafe. So fear, I think a lot of times, either the fear of rejection, the fear of, of, of people, it keeps us from faithfully living out the second greatest commandment, which is to love your neighbor. But the second factor, I think it could be sheer inconvenience. 
like just flat out inconvenience. It's that simple and it's that sinful. Like if you look at Numbers 19, there's a law for people who come close to dead bodies. It actually says that if you touch a dead body, you become unclean. And for seven days, you are unclean. You have to isolate yourself, go into quarantine. You, one thing that you absolutely can't do is actually go to the temple and have fellowship. Now, these guys, the priests, the Levites, they, they work at the temple. That's their job. In order for them to, to, to do their work, to support their family, like they need to be present. And so maybe it could be that at that moment, they're thinking, well, this guy looks half dead. What if he dies when I'm there? Or what if like this guy actually is dead when I get close? Like if I touch him, man, that's seven days. Like that's inconvenient. Like I'm not going to get paid. Like I can't go to my family. Like I got to get it in or what am I going to do? Like a lot of times the reason why we fail to stop, the reason why we go around is because it's simply just inconvenient that we have places to go, services to attend. Like we're too late for work, family to take care of. And because of all these different factors, because the cost seems way too high, we just go around. And so I don't know about you, but I, I really feel these two individuals. Like, like no one can really point fingers at these two individuals, right? Like if we want to defend them, we can absolutely defend them with all these different reasoning. But what we see is this, that this is a picture of someone who does not love their neighbor as they should. But then Jesus gives a picture of someone who really loves their neighbor. It says in verse 33, but a Samaritan, and that might not mean a lot for us, but it means to the world in this context because a Samaritan was, Samaritans were despised by Jews. They were considered unclean. Like they're half Jew, half Gentile uh, during the time of exile, right? A lot of them remained in, in northern Israel. And what happened is uh, when God said, hey, you should kind of stick within your people to marry, like they married all these foreign people. And, and when the Jews returned, they were like, hey, you guys abandoned your faith. You guys compromised your faith. And so literally, like it's kind of like in Harry Potter when they look down on the wizards and, 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 the, and the normal people that they get married and like they look down on those half-bloods. Like it's like the same thing, like half-blood. Like you guys are not our people. Like you're, you guys are worse. Like they considered Samaritans the equal level as pigs. Like, second-level citizens, like, dogs. Like, these people are not human. Like, that's, that, that was their view. And so they intentionally went around Samaria when they would have to travel between Judea and Galilee. Either, even though it's like a straight line from uh, Judea and Galilee, they, ha- they intentionally go around the long route so just so that they can avoid the uncleanness of the Samaritans. So Jews hate Samaritans with a passion. And so a Samaritan comes along, and this should ring a bell. Hey, in this story, if there's anyone who should get a pass for going around, it, it should be the Samaritan. Like this most likely Jew who's lying on the road hates Samaritans with, with his, his guts. Like can't stand Samaritans. Like it doesn't even see this, this, this person as an individual, like a, as a human being. And so Samaritans know that. And so he just happens to travel in this area. Like he meets this guy on the road, most likely a Jewish man. And he's probably thinking, like, I mean, this guy doesn't hate me to begin with. Like, I have no business serving this guy, helping this guy. Why, why would I do that when he doesn't even acknowledge me? 
And so if there's anyone who should get a pass for not helping, it should be this Samaritan. But notice what he says. It says, but a Samaritan, in verse 33, he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, the same way he saw the, the Levite and the priest saw this dead man, this dying man, it says he had compassion. He had compassion. Instead of avoiding this guy, it says in verse 34, he went to him, he approached him. He didn't go around. He went to him. He bound up his wounds. Most likely took off his own garment to bind up the wounds of this, this man. Then he set him on, on his own animal after pouring oil and wine on him. So he's using his, whatever's in his possession to help this man, help the pain, disinfect the wounds. But we also see that he, he comes down from his animal. Now, again, this was a long journey. And it seems like this guy was pretty wealthy. Like, he has an animal to ride on. Like, he doesn't have to walk the whole way. And yet, he comes down from his animal. He puts this dying man on the animal, and he's willing to walk all the way. And he walks all the way with him, brought this man to an end, and it doesn't end there. It's not like he throws this man into a room and hopes that he's going to stay alive. No, he stays with this man, spends the night, took care of him, it says, most likely spits stayed up all night to make sure that this guy was okay. Well, we see in verse 35, the next day, he took out two denarii. Now, one denarii is what you would normally earn uh, in a day's paycheck. And so let's say about 100, 150. So two denarii is a couple hundred bucks. So this guy is dropping a couple hundred bucks on someone who he doesn't know. Uh, he's paying for the, 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 the fee, the innkeeper. Um, he, he receives this money, and the guy says, well, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Like, I'm willing to cover whatever it is. Like, you don't even know what the medical bill is going to be like, right? Like, just think about America. Like, you go to a hospital, medical bills, like, especially if someone's dying, go to ICU, like, you might, you might be in big trouble, especially if you don't have insurance. But what you see is this guy was saying, I'll cover it. I'll be his insurance. Like, whatever bill, whatever charge is created, Bill it to me. He's willing to go as far as you can as an individual. And this is where the story ends. In verse 36, this theologian, this lawyer, turns to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So the question has changed now. The question is no longer who is your neighbor or how far do you go? question now is who are you to other people like it's not what you're going to do in the future who are you right now which of these men proved not just said that they're a neighbor proved to be a neighbor and the guy says in verse 37 the one who showed him mercy the one who showed him mercy he can't even dare to say samaritan because this lawyer like knows like like he doesn't even want to mention the word samaria like and so he says the one the third guy he showed him mercy. And Jesus says this, you go and do likewise. So how do you feel about the story? After seeing all that the Samaritan did for this man, the application of today's sermon is that you go to likewise. That's kind of it. Let's go do it. Right? You feel pretty confident about that? That you're willing to drop a couple hundred bucks Lay down your convenience, your time, your resources to help a person. 
I don't know how you feel, but I feel inadequate. When I hear this conclusion, it's like, man, I'm in big trouble. Because I don't have the heart in me to really go this far. I might be able to drop a couple bucks for people, buy a hot meal, like, you know, if, 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 I'm, if I have time. But to go this far, like, I don't know if I can do this. And that's exactly the point of the story. I want to end with two main points. Number one is this. This story reminds us that, that we're not the good Samaritan, but we need a good Samaritan. You are not the good Samaritan. You need a good Samaritan. The prime point of, of, of this story is that, that you're not it. Like the guy who showed mercy is not you. It's, it's night and day. Like, that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to this lawyer who thinks he's just a little bit far off from being righteous. Like, he thinks that if I just do a little bit more, that I'm worthy to be accepted into God's kingdom. And yet, Jesus reminds this guy, no, there's no chance that you can. Now, why do I say that? Like, you might think this is a stretch, but just hear me out. The word compassion appears in a couple places in the Gospels. Every single time, other than this case, it is applied to Jesus in reference to Jesus. You think about Luke 7 where you have this, this widow and she just lost her one and only son. And, and she somehow meets Jesus as she is proceeding in, in the funeral. And she's broken. People are crying over this this. this Son, and, and at that moment, the Bible says Jesus had compassion over this lady and raised this dead child back to life. Like, Jesus had compassion over him. In Mark 8, the story of feeding of 5,000, it says that, that Jesus had compassion over the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We read in Luke 15, the famous story about the prodigal son, when the son was lost in his sin, uh, living a life of, of waste and, and, and enjoying all that the world has to offer, but he was broken at the end. And he finally comes to realization that, man, even, even the servants in my father's house, they, they, they have better food. Like, they live a better life. Let me just go back to my father. I don't have the audacity to ask him to receive me as a son. I'm just going to ask for mercy. And as he's walking towards the, the father, the father from a distance, the Bible says, sees the son and had compassion over this son. And that's the heart of God. It's the heart of Jesus. When you don't have to do anything for this person, this person deserves nothing of you, nothing of your kindness. There's no reason for you to receive this person's goodness. And yet, Jesus, out of sheer compassion and mercy, stops for broken people. In Ephesians 2, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins that we were isolated from God of the universe. Like, if you think about that statement, like, we are literally half dead right now, like, in our sin. Like, we are dying. It's a matter of time that we, if we don't repent from our sins, it's a matter of time, although we might be breathing right now, like, eternally we are dead in our trespasses and in sins, and yet, because of God's great mercy, because of Jesus, in faith in Jesus, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, like we are able to have new life when we believe in him, in our sinful state, when we didn't have the ability to respond to God, just like this man. Like God says that he sent his son when we were still sinners. Jesus died for us. 
Like we can't even communicate to God our needs and articulate to God what we deeply need. And then still just came to this earth to, into our mess beyond when we were beyond repair, unable to serve ourselves, get out of the situation we are in due to being beat up by sin, by the brokenness of this world. I don't know how you feel, but like the weight of this world, the attacks of the enemy, like it gets really, really difficult for you to stand. And like at some point, you're so depressed, you're devastated, and all that life has to throw at you. And you're like, man, I just want to quit. When we were in that state, it says in Philippians 2, Jesus, although he was equal with God, did not count equality with God, a thing to grasp. He came down as the form of the servant. You know, people, when they were with the master, the master would ride on the animal. It would be the servant who would walk next to the master. And yet, this guy was willing to put the dying man on the, on the animal. And he was willing to walk as a servant and serve this, this guy all night. Like, who does that? Well, Jesus served us, died on the cross, served us to the point of death, Philippians 2 says. Served us all the way to salvation. And so is it hard for us to connect the dots to see that the real Samaritan, the only Samaritan, the ultimate Samaritan is Jesus Christ? This is who he is. And here's the great part. At the end, when he has to take off, he gives the great commandment and he says, I want you to make disciples, but remember, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Like whatever you need, I have your back. Like the payment of your debts, your sin, you can charge that on me because that's how great my sacrifice was. Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. And so reading this story, we ought to realize that, man, we are nowhere near this good Samaritan, but it reminds us a, a lot about Jesus. So you are not the good Samaritan, but you need a good Samaritan. But here's the second point I want to make, because the story doesn't end there. Jesus, at the very end, he doesn't say, okay, this is a heartwarming story. This is actually me. No, he doesn't say that. He says, do you see what the Samaritan did and how he was a good neighbor to others? Then you do likewise. In other words, here's the second point. Be a good Samaritan because you have a good Samaritan. Be a good Samaritan because you have one. That's, that's, that's the application. That's a practical application. The reason why we can go out and, 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 and pour ourselves for the sake of others, even though we might not know this person, that we would leverage our time, we would use our resources to serve others. Why? Because we've been served first. Like, we have a good Samaritan. And Jesus says, do you see this guy? If you recognize that you are the man who is dying on the road, then you ought to do likewise for other people. Like, there are no limits when it comes to mercy. Like, you don't pick and choose who you're going to help. By the way, like, that's the definition of mercy. Like, if they deserve your love, that means, like, that's, that's a payment. Like, you're pleasing a person. But mercy, it means that you do something without expecting a return. And so... God calls us to love others who don't deserve our love because he loved us when we were still enemies of him. Like if there's one guy who, who would get a pass from saving us, it should be God. It should be Jesus because we first offended him in our sin. Like we rebelled against him. Like if there's, if, if some people say, wait, why doesn't God save everyone? And I'm like, if you think about what you have done before God, 
how you have despised his good law. You're living your own way. It's like going to the Father and saying, I want you dead. Like, I'm just going to live my own life. Like, if there's one guy who could let his son just die in despair, it's the prodigal son's dad. Like, that's, that's the guy. Just like the Samaritan had the pass. And yet, Jesus, although he had the pass, he didn't use that pass. He went straight to the man in need. In the same way, I think we should go straight to the people who are in need. And Christ-like mercy, it has no excuse. Now, some people would say this. Well, Pastor James, I get the message. I understand that I need to do more for other people. But where does it end, really? Like, there's so many people who are homeless, broken, just in need emotionally, mentally, and physically, like, how, where does it end? Like, do I just quit my job? Like, like do I abandon my family? How, how far do I go when it comes to loving my neighbors? And before you ask the question, I just want to point out that I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to answer here. I think the point he's trying to make is this. It's not about how far you need to go because that's exactly what the lawyer was worried about. Hey, how far? What's the end? To my service, Jesus is asking, where, do, where is it going to begin? Like, where are you going to start? Like, a lot of us, we think of the end already, and it's like, okay, nothing's going to change, therefore I'm not going to do anything right now. Like, we justify our actions. In, in other words, like, we're trying to put limits. As long as I, I'm okay, I'm, I'm, I'm nice to the people close to me, my immediate neighbors, like, I can be, I can be justified before God. That's exactly what this lawyer is trying to do. And, and, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You put no limits if you have been loved with no limits. You know, I love how this story appears in the context because uh, right before the story, remember, the disciples, they return from their mission trip. They're ecstatic about the fact that, you know, demons, they tremble before us. Like, we had the power. We had the success. Like, and they're rejoicing. And, and they come to Jesus and like, look at what we have done. And Jesus says, well, that's all great, but just remember, you ought to rejoice because, not because demons fall before you, but because your names are written in heaven. In other words, you don't rejoice in what you simply do. You rejoice in who you are before God, right? You rejoice in your identity. You rejoice in your relationship with God. And the next thing that Jesus says is, I rejoice because, God, you have a good will towards these people. So he doesn't rejoice in the good works. He rejoices in who he is in God and also who God is, how he is gracious. Do you notice that the lawyer who appears in this story was all about what he does? Like, he doesn't care about who he is. It's like, I want to make sure that I do everything the right way to inherit God's kingdom. Here's the funny part. Inheritance is not something that you earn. That question itself is quite ironic because inheritance is something that you receive in relationship. You receive it from your parents. You receive it from someone that you know. If you receive something by working hard, that's a payment. And this guy is saying, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is trying to say, no, 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 no. It's not about what you do. It's what about Christ has done for you and who you are now in Christ, that your name is written in heaven and you have a God who is not despising you, who is not avoiding you, but you have a God who has a good will for your life. He's leading you to salvation. Would you understand that you are in need of a good Samaritan? God sent you a good Samaritan, that Jesus came to this earth to serve you, to save you, to heal you, to bind up your broken wounds so that you can live a life for him? Would you just simply understand it and do the same for others? Compassion. You know, I'll just end with this. Um, 
couple of years ago, we had a shuttle to um, GW, George Washington, because we had a good number of, of GW students who attended our service. Um, it, was, it was great. Um, at that time, our service was at, at 2 p.m., and so people would take the shuttle to church, and then afterwards, after fellowship, we would normally share a meal together or snacks together, and then uh, around 5, you know, that's when like, people would go back home. And so, like, you know, one of our staff members, he was driving the shuttle, like the 15-passenger van. Uh, he was going home. And when I get back home, and this is when youth service is in the morning. So we start our day at 8 with intercessory prayer. Like, we have Bible study. We have youth and then have lunch. And then we have EM service. And then we have EM fellowship. And so we went to, like, 8 to 4. And, and so, like, I'm exhausted already, like, tired. I receive a call from this other staff, and he, he tells me, I have a problem. Like the van, the tire, it's something's off, something's off. Like maybe it's it's punctured. Like it's it's a flat tire, and I don't know I don't know how to change the tire. And so I was like, okay, great. Like this is the last thing I wanted on my day. Like I just had a great Sunday, incredible fellowship. Like this guy is in D.C. He's literally on the ramp uh, from Kennedy to going on to 66. Like a very narrow ramp, and it's like, and I'm thinking, okay, like I gotta go. And, and so I drive there, and it happens to be traffic. It takes about 30 minutes. I finally get there, and I still remember the scene. I get on this ramp, and there's this big white van. You can't miss it. It says, Shining Star. And then behind that van, you, there's a car, like a tiny sedan parked there. And I see when I approach the van, there's a guy laying on the ground, this African-American guy. He's laying on the ground, all covered in sweat, and he's changing the tire. And, and, I, and after he changes it, I, I asked him the question, man, that's, that's, I'm so thankful that you showed up. Like, who are you? Like, what's your story? Like, like most people don't do this. And he was sharing, actually, that, that he was a youth pastor. He was attending a conference in D.C., and he was on his way back to North Carolina. And he had his entire family in that car, his wife and his children. And yet, in the, in the, and this is in the summer, like in the heat of the day, like, when he was exhausted, he was tired for this long weekend after a conference. Like, I've been to conferences before. The last thing you want to do at the end of the conference is, is like, stop somewhere. You want to go home. Like, and yet this guy, knowing that he had hours to drive, knowing that he had small kids in the back screaming. Well, they actually weren't screaming. I have no idea how he kept them so calm. Like, like maybe he, he wasn't even showing them something. They were, like, just waiting patiently. And he just says something so profound. I still remember it. He says, like, you know, this is kind of what we do in our town. If some people have need, we, we stop. And I was like, dang, that's, that's, that's the heart of Jesus. Like, can you imagine if you stopped for someone, showed kindness, and they ask you, why in the world will you do this when everyone else is avoiding me? And you simply say, well, can I just tell you a story that, that when I was broken, dead, and lost, like someone stopped for me, and his name is Jesus. What a powerful testimony that could be. Instead of you talking about how we ought to love your neighbor, love God, do all these things. I think what Jesus is getting to the heart of the issue is that if we really love God and we understand his compassion towards us and his mercy and kindness towards us, that we have the power all of a sudden to do the same. Not because we are able to in our ability, because his grace empowers us to do so. So I don't know what this means for you. Maybe if you are lost right now and you never experienced this compassion, you have no idea what this feels like, maybe it's a sign for you to really understand God's heart for you. 
Um, maybe if you have an understanding of this, but you've never been able to put this into practice, it's, it's a call to you. God is not saying that you need to do all these different things to be saved, but he's saying that saving faith displays good works, lasting fruit, and it leads others to see God's glory. So let's do that as a church. Let's love people like this good Samaritan, like Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.